Sponsored by the UCD Innovation Academy. You're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You with Dr. Lolly Mansi. Hi, I'm Dr. Lolly, and you're listening to An Entrepreneur Like You. I'm an entrepreneur and a lecturer in UCD's Innovation Academy, and I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, and creativity. And I believe that entrepreneurs are both born and made. In this series, we won't be talking to the Elon Musks and the Richard Bransons of this world. We'll be talking to people just like you. Hi, welcome to An Entrepreneur Like You with me, Dr. Lolly. And this month, my guest is Killian Stokes. Hey, Killian. Hi, how's it going? <laughs> really, really good. Now, Killian, we've been in each other's orbits for a number of years. We have indeed, uh, yeah. Not just in UCD, but um, in the fact that um, I have your coffee uh, every single morning. And we'll come on to how you got into coffee in a second. But I think we might, um, I like to steal from uh, Stephen Bartlett, Diary of a CEO. He's uh, is a great first question here. So we might just take from him. Um, what do we need to know about you as a young boy that will explain currently what you're doing and what you're interested in? Oh my God. Um, maybe I loved playing with Lego as a kid. So maybe I like building things. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what kind of a, what kind of a child were you? I mean, I was the, I was the youngest of five. So I had three older brothers who were either nice to me or they beat me up or whatever. So, you know, you were in a big family yeah. and... Um, I mean, back in those days, you know, five, you're living on hand-me-down clothes. And right. I'm not saying it was it was hardship, but it was, you know, normal. Before recycling really became... Before all that, like, <laughs> recycling. You know, yeah, I mean, you think of some of the things we do now. Yeah. Um, you, back then it was sharing. It was, as, as a pal of mine said, when you're, when you're like, a, from a large family, you feed yourself or else you die. So, you yeah. know, you're the youngest kid. When food lands on the table... You have three older brothers. Do you still eat fast because of that? I think so. I, I remember being in a, in a restaurant one time with a friend and she's the youngest in a big family. And it was in, in London and, and some uh, papadoms or starters were put down and she and I dived in and everybody else was politely waiting and we both realised we were like the two yes. hungry pigs digging into the, the well, chips. Well, there's nothing left the, if you don't get in there quickly, right? Yeah, well, that's what we, we figured out. It's because we come from that being a youngest child, you know, in the shadow of older siblings who yeah. push you around. But also your negotiation yeah. skills get pretty good when, you know, you, you have to learn to barter for stuff, right? Yes, you do, I suppose. Or know which brothers to, you know, partnerships, strategic yeah, yeah, alliances. Yeah. Well, I can, now you're saying it, partnerships, bartering, strategic alliances, <laughs> that's all what you're involved with anyway. Who's not going to beat you up, so hang, hang out with them. But, or also just you wise up. I remember one of my older brothers when I was a kid always used to say, like when I got sweets, he would always go, oh, let's have a picnic. So I'd be like, yeah, let's have a picnic. <laughs> so he'd basically get half my sweets. Yeah. But there was never any picnics going the other way. <laughs> so the sharing economy, maybe we'll start there. Maybe we'll start there. So um, have you always been, um, uh, how would you describe yourself? I, w I would see, I, I, I kind of feel like yourself and I, myself might be a little left wing, you know. So uh, how would you describe your leanings? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, uh, and maybe that comes from from coming from a big family, there was always friends and, mm. and people around. Um, my parents, I suppose, you in this day and age, you would definitely say we're, we're liberal and left-wing. And yeah. I think they're very, you know, I'd say if I have a moral compass, it comes from them. Their their view of the world yeah. uh, was is still very instrumental in the way in which... And I think at that time, it, it, money wasn't a priority. And, you know, Ireland today and since the Celtic Tiger, yeah. and, you know, we've become much more about business and money and profits. Though Back then it was maybe more you know relationships and people and integrity and, and decency and I'm, mm. I'm not saying things are people aren't decent today but it seems certainly maybe that's just as a kid that seemed yeah. to be the focus so I you know you'd see 
your parents, or certainly my mum, like, you know, encouraging, like with other kids, bringing in kids, sharing food or snacks or whatever. I was going to say to you, do you um, have like an open door policy then? Like, yeah. everyone was welcome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. I, but I think that was more common for lots of houses, yeah, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, we were probably in and out of, of neighbours' houses and those kids. And if they were eating, stuff. you would eat as well. Yeah, like, yeah absolutely. Um, so maybe that, I mean, perhaps that does uh, um, colour or th- that does affect my yeah. views later in life or my the compass or direct you know my my views on life and what, how one well also maybe what's good what's enjoyable in life and it was never connected to it was never about money it was about being with people and having maybe having food and stuff and if you um, could describe the values of your parents how would you how would you describe them um i mean i'd say they're very in in ireland they were very open minded yeah um, they had a lot of friends in the arts community. Right. So in the 70s and 80s, I, even as a kid, we, we would often have these parties they were involved with, say... The word bohemians uh, springing to a mind. A lot of bohemians, absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and, and people of all different backgrounds and sexual orientation and everything. So Back in the day when it wasn't. Back in the day when yeah, it wasn't the yeah, norm. Yeah, it really wasn't. And I do think that's a brilliant thing. I think that absolutely... And I you know, like... Ireland is brilliantly liberal today in many, you know, we've some of the things we've voted for and stuff, we've, yeah. we're quite an open and progressive economy or, yeah. or society, I should say. Mm. And I think back then we weren't. And so yeah. maybe it's instrumental that they they and their friends were very open-minded and also people are very cultured into music and painting and So and would it arts. be fair to say then that your parents created a sort of a safe space for, for everybody? Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of that phrase, but yes, I mean, you know, it was still like God mad rows, me and my brothers killing each other, but yeah. they created a really a space inclusive that was space, an inclusive yeah. space yeah. and that was I guess they're very curious people. They were yeah. they were interested in I mean, they didn't have much money for travel, you know, more of the travel that I've done in my life was out of my own pocket as an as an adult or a yeah. student or whatever. But they were kind of we'd loads of books in the house and as I say, they were into their pals were artists and poets and all types of actors and things like that. So, learning was it was a, a you know they were it was curious in that way towards learning and mm. um, sounds so very inspiring childhood. Very rich environment, I suppose. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, what did your uh, brothers go on to do? Uh, one lives out in Seattle, is in the tech sector yeah. for, for a number of decades. He's like an architect and a, and a consultant in technology. Another is um, has a telecoms consultancy. He travels quite a lot in Africa, consults on on large telecom operators, you know, expanding their networks and and um, you know moving into new technologies. Uh, my eldest sister um, was in the bank and she was dealing with franchising for many years, um, sort of the accountant in the family and yeah. my maybe my personal accountant. So she's the one who maybe puts my feet on the ground or yeah. puts a bit of reality check. Um, and she, and, and I'll say it like later on, you know, she, there was a moment in our, with Shane and I, with Moi, that we, we met with her. But um, uh, yeah, she, she's the one who kind of grounded me on the financial front, yeah. you know, all that dreamy we artistic that. stuff was yeah. great. But <laughs> yeah, um, so she was in kind of finance and, and banking and franchising for many years and still is consults in that, that space. And then, um, yeah, and I have another brother who works uh, in equality tribunal and work related, uh, you know, yeah. quality at work. Um, so uh, yeah, a mix of a, real a mix of things. Yeah, know. but I can see some commonalities. You've got one in sub-Saharan Africa. You've got one in equality. That's yeah. So I can I can see yeah, where, one where, over where in they Seattle, lie. So a bit of bit of 
travel and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah brilliant. Um, and um, do you have uh, have any of your brothers and sisters have children? Are you an uncle? I'm an uncle to eight nieces <gasps> and nephews. Yeah. Oh my goodness, the legacy continues. So. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know how seriously the they take grows. me, but um, <laughs> the family certainly grows. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, no, I've great eight, and again, they're spread. There's a couple of them, three of them in Seattle, two of them in in Monkstown, and uh, three of them in France. So yeah, how glorious! Uh, how yeah. glorious! What kind of an uncle are you? Oh gosh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I used to like to do was try and send them postcards when I would travel. Well, that's nice. I think that was. Um, yeah, I mean, I you know, when I see them, I, I don't know, you'd have to ask them what kind of an uncle am I? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, it's very cute. Um, let's go back to you then in terms of your childhood. So so from school, uh, what did you want to do with your life? Yeah, I, I think when I, you know, in secondary school, maybe I would have been all into things like Greenpeace and um, back in the 80s, CND at one yeah. point and some of the, the human rights things, Amnesty International, those yeah. campaigns were quite big. They were, yeah. Um, there was a lot of that like social just, you know, global social justice movers, movements and I suppose even Live Aid we were aware of l- larger things. So that might have planted yeah. the seeds. But I, I went on, I studied business in Trinity College. You see, that doesn't uh, seem like a natural uh, place to, for you to be perhaps. Well, I did economics there and, okay. I, and I had studied economics in, in secondary school and I really like even today I think my brain I think I, I'm an economist you know okay. my mind works in that way like I, I really enjoy understanding the system you know economics is kind of yeah the psychology and where where, where money and, and business meets our economy and, and kind of the macro forces there um, and how did you how did you get on with it did you enjoy it yeah I thought I mean it was some really great courses there was one in particular was maybe the economics of less developed countries there, as it was called it at the time. Yeah. So that <laughs> maybe connects back to the Lego thing. And I always, yeah. you know, economics in, in what we were studying anyway, yeah. uh, when it came to European or American economies, was lots of sophisticated stuff, lots of kind of, you know, stock markets and, and interest rates and stuff. Co- complicated systems and, and well and good. But what I maybe thought was more fascinating with the less developed countries was you could see these wide open opportunities of yeah. like missing infrastructure or missing right. electrical, you know, electricity or energy systems or water systems. Um, and even say things like uh, in yields in agriculture, you were able to very clearly see, oh my God, there's a huge opportunity yeah. for that country. If they can just get their hands on the funding, the finance to get and maybe get some skills, there's an opportunity for them to really move and and maybe that's that relates back to the way of mm. of Ireland um yeah uh, i mean i kind of one connection there i've be very inspired by is in my parents generation you know they came from poor uh working class houses my mum from ringsend my dad from limerick but in 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 their time and, and they worked you know they were of a generation it was there was a huge most people were in a similar boat but the access to free education yeah really helped. My dad was able to get on and go to, to university and eventually he worked um, for the thesis department on arts and culture. Right. So, I mean, I think his trajectory, Yeah. I mean, he's now nearly 89, but his trajectory and, and him and mum, the, the, the leap that they made, you know. Yes, that going, enabled you all to take this. Yeah, I mean, kind of growing from houses. When you look at where they were as kids, Yeah. it might have been similar conditions to some of the folks I've met on, on trips to Africa. You know, outdoor yeah. plumbing, uh, various foods, kind of sparse like range of foods, choices and and now here they are with their iPads and their their Netflix and their in their eighties, yeah. you know. 
Um, you're not just a, a son, you're kind of, you know, tech support for your... <laughs> sure. But I think that's a lovely... To see them and, and, and the way they've they've moved, you know, I think, and central heating and all that, now living in warmer homes, I think yeah. that's a nice story within Ireland. Like the level, the quality of life we have for, broadly speaking, you know, we of course we've still problems in Ireland, but yeah. those improvements we've seen in the last 75 years. Our standard of living is completely different. Yeah, yeah. Ma- massive. Yeah. It's hugely due to advances. For, for, in, for most of us. For, mo- for yeah. most of us. Yeah. And it's hugely down to, you know, improvements in technology or science. Right but absolutely in the products that businesses and entrepreneurs have brought to us. Yeah. Uh, and that includes like being able to get all of your groceries in a supermarket, yeah. you know, um, down to, I don't know, razor blades or internet access, you know, so many. F- we can see really clearly from Brexit that sort of, you know, we're, we're, we're a little bit more autonomous than I think we might have thought we were. <laughs> you yeah. Because uh, there, there's, there's been a lot of downsides, but it, it seems, um, it, it, you know, we're, 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 we're thriving you know, at the moment, even with Brexit, which we thought may be, you know, potentially, you know, a catastrophe for us. Uh, I think it's been very, very difficult for a lot of businesses. Uh, but at the same time, also, we've got food on the shelves. Yeah, know? and we've got access yeah. to, you know, we turn on the tap, we've got clean water. Yeah. Um, there is generally electricity and internet 365 yeah. days. You know, we don't... A friend of mine's just been given the caretaker job of moving out to Inish Turk, and he's moved from uh, running festivals in uh, the Liberties. And he's now looking at sort of Inish Turk as the, he's the custodian. Like a lighthouse custodian or just the island? Just the island. He, there was 60 people now, there's 61. Um, and he was saying, and, and, I, and he said, when are you coming over? And I said, I, I'm not entirely sure. And he said, there's 5G. I said, in a couple of weeks, <laughs> you know, because now I can work from anywhere. Yeah. Now, actually, turns out there's not, there's 4G. But they were looking at trialing 5G on Inish Turk, you know. Brilliant. So yeah. it's, it's that kind of thing we're talking about, right? That sort of level of connectedness. I mean, that's... I. We're so fortunate to, yeah. to have that. And and it's, you know, if your work is connected with sitting with a laptop and having internet access, I mean, you can nowadays you can literally, if you've got the money and maybe the right passport, yeah. you can literally work from, from, from and, you know, we're certainly, we're the two of us sitting here, we, we are quite fortunate in that way that we can go to many parts of the world and, and yeah, do digital that. nomad yeah the digital nomad thing yeah, yeah absolutely and the tax breaks that come but as you say rightly that's just you know that's not everybody that's a, a certain yeah. section so if you're in trinity you're studying business uh you liked the economic side of things in the developing world then then what happened to you yeah then i mean i also love to travel and, and at that time i'd spent a lot of summer like most many students i'd, I'd spent summers working in kind of america or france and germany and stuff um and that it was great to travel you know so I started, when I left college, um, got into the tech sector, mm. which was kind of, about 1995, was really starting to, you know, the How internet, exciting. Yeah. email, all of that. So I started to get work for a couple of companies, one dealing with video conferencing, um, one dealing with kind of mail, email systems, um, and then eventually one, the mobile internet. Mm. So for about eight years out of college, I worked in the tech sector. Mm. And I guess I always loved, and I still do love, the the idea that technology can be sort of this democratic force can be this yeah you don't need a library full of books if you've got access to the internet so connecting even with the the course the on less developed you know the economics of less developed countries yeah I remember being excited that hey this you know villages in rural parts say of sub-Saharan Africa or in India or South America or or, or parts of the world that don't that at that time yeah. didn't have the libraries and books we have that kids there would be able to have digital, like, leapfrog ahead, you know. We're and on I, the cusp of that right now, again, with uh, with AI, in terms of those that are in digital darkness, 
and those that will have access. And that's, I mean, that's huge. Yeah. But, and I mean, that was what, 1990s yeah. was when I was in college. But the, and in the tech sector, I worked in the right up until about 2002. But even then, you know, when you look back, I was working in telecoms and any of the conferences I went to. I mean, I kind of worked in the tech sector because at the time out of college, it was nice money and it was yeah. an opportunity to travel. So I was able to go to the States and travel out to Asia and, and various places with work, which I really, I really loved traveling to those places. Yeah. Um, but uh, back then, you know, we kind of, the conferences that, that I go to, the, the telecoms community yeah. ignored Africa. It just, we looked at Japan and China <laughs> sure. and we thought, okay, those are leading on the technologies, mobile 3G and all that, yeah. um, GSM. Then Europe was next. Right. And the Americans weren't on their mobiles, really. They were all landlines because they drive, they're so far from each other. Right, right. It was all, oh my God, you know, the the mile, the miles or the distance in America was bigger. Yeah. But we just completely ignored Africa. And yeah. What we've which seen, is why the Chinese is, decided that they'd move in there in such well, large numbers. Yeah, but you actually had Africans themselves. I mean, in the last 20 years, in our lifetime, like in the last, I'm 50, in, in the last 50 years, the two biggest yeah. changes have been global vaccines, the rollout of global vaccines in the 1980s. Yeah. It's radically gone from 20% of children being vaccinated to 80% worldwide. Made a huge change yeah. to tackle kind of poverty and child mortality and stuff. Of course. And then the second thing is 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 mobile phones in yeah. the last 20 years. Yeah. So while I was going to those conferences and, and all the Western companies were ignoring Africa, you'd African entrepreneurs like Mo Ibrahim, yeah. um, the Sudanese-born yeah. entrepreneur who became a billionaire, you yes. know, built these. So there's networks in MTN and Cellcom in Africa. And over the last 20 years, the tech growth of mobile phone usage there was off the charts, was faster yeah. than other regions. And then on top of that, you have the layer of mobile payments. Yes. Which has been around for like, we're, and I mean, I know we have, you know, Apple Pay and all this kind of thing. Yeah. It's now much more common. We use our phone to pay for things. Yeah, absolutely. But that was happening 12 years ago in Kenya. Yeah. You know, M-Pesa. They were just, it is the normal way in which they do. It's, it's you know, fast becoming a cashless business, uh, society. Because yes. people of all ages and stages from all backgrounds, rural, urban, whatever, use their phone to so um yeah i think that's quite that's an exciting move and maybe that's parallel to uh, i'm not saying i was involved in that but you know that's kind <laughs> yeah. of what i liked about it. that has sort of come true that uh, i mean i think the takeaway there is it's don't underestimate you know for many years yeah. and certainly in ireland we've long history of ngos working with africa and we think of charity and even going back to those things i talked That's, about those influences in the 80s yeah, were sort of charity and it was looking you know what was wrong about that time was it was looking at people from the continent as well, victims it, or needing help developed and less developed yeah. let's you know let's let, let's um, uh, let, let's just call it what it is you know it was a sort of a hierarchy system basically of sort of we we are developed therefore we are finished in terms of our evolution <laughs> uh, it's it's a finite thing and you are less developed than we are uh, rather than looking at sort of any other tangible indicators well but, it was um, really looking as well it was ignoring the fact that the continent is full of entrepreneurs. Yes, absolutely. And the people themselves, as has been the case with Ireland, the people themselves were were um, the best placed to to progress their societies. You know, to advance through developing their own products or services or companies. Um, and we've certainly seen that with with Mo Ibrahim. You know, with with yeah. in the telco sector and and the M-Pesa 
um, app. You know, just kind of what we've seen in development there of, of the use of tech. It's uh, it's really enabled, massively enabled commerce and, and local entrepreneurs to um, to do their thing, you know. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to come back and I, uh, we're going to take a short break. But after the break, I want to delve into the whole idea of sort of um, aid and charity with you because I know that's how we first connected. But we'll take a short break. 93.9 Dublin South FM. Welcome back to An Entrepreneur Like You with me, Dr. Lally, and my guest today, Killian Stokes. So, Killian, just before the break, we were talking about trade, not aid. (laughs) So, I came from anthropology into social justice and then into innovation. You came from business and economics in through to development. Where did your travels take you? So, I mean, I worked in, when I left college, I worked in tech up until around 2002 or three. But then I, I, I got into the not-for-profit world. So yeah. I, I worked with organizations like Concern and Self-Help Africa. And um, that kind of work took me, mostly I was doing fundraising for those organizations. Yeah. But that did take me on um, trips out to Uganda, Ethiopia, yeah. um, Kenya, Burkina Faso, even even Haiti in the, in the Caribbean. But um, in particular, Uganda, I, I, I around that time I went back and I did a master's. So I did a a paper on the HIV epidemic, which which really had its origins yeah. in Uganda. So I was very fortunate to spend three months traveling around um, Uganda one summer back in 2005. Yeah. Um, and that was, you know, really... God, do you know what? That's, that's uncanny because I actually think it was 2005 that I was in Uganda in Kampala um, for my PhD looking at Irish aid and um, uh, how they organise in terms of being a learning organisation. No way. Yeah, I think we would have been there a similar time. Wow. Yeah, I've been <laughs> back there a few times and I've, but uh, yeah. I have one, one particular, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm never going to work in development because my uh, my thesis was a sort of a bit of a damning indictment of uh, of development at the time. Um, but I have one uh, chapter called Smoked Salmon in the Diplomatic Bag. <laughs> My, yeah. my my uh, my my supervisor said you'll you'll never work in development if you publish this and I said well publish it and I'll work somewhere else so yeah. that's that's what happened but I I really for me going out there the thing that I I felt was so distasteful really was for it was that I've I I think there had been this idea in my mind anyway um, that the Irish were somehow different in development from perhaps some other European countries certainly from from the English with a sort of a more colonial background because the Irish wouldn't have had one. And then the sort of the narrative was around the fact that we're different. And I was observing things like, well, we all call each other by our first names. And, you know, but I still saw that you had indigenous drivers and, you know, um, you know you've know, you got a black Ugandan maid and a nanny and you're living in a gated community. Yeah. And that all felt very strange to me, that mm. that life. And there was this wonderful... And hanging out at swimming pools and country clubs at the weekend. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, the country club life. And, and there was this wonderful article I found, uh, which was called Mercenaries, Missionaries and Misfits. And it kind of talked about you get into development to be a missionary to change the world. Then you become a mercenary because you realize you can't do anything. And actually, most people are misfits. And that's probably a damning indictment. There's loads of really good people in development. Well, I'd heard that that phrase in terms of they were the kind of Europeans you'd spot. And like if you were in a bar in Uganda, you'd either or walking in a cafe, you'd spot all these kind of many of them American evangelists. Yes. Reaching God. You'd see some strange looking men with mustaches drinking beer in the middle of the day who were, you know, with, with a a girl or something, they were mercenaries on their or and or yes. from wars in the Congo and all, like 
strange yeah, characters. And, and then the misfits were the NGO workers. Of course. And then, of, you know, other sort um, of statistics that sort of popped into research, things like, you know, uh, you know, women are more at risk during times of peace than times of conflict. And, you know, what went on and has gone on in terms of gender-based violence in refugee camps and all sorts of things then started to infiltrate. And I was like, do you know, I don't want to be anywhere near development. Mm. I just really, I kind of dipped my toe in it for a good six or seven years. And then I actually thought, this isn't, these these are not my people. This isn't yeah. my tribe. This isn't where I'm meant to be. Mm. How did you get on with that whole sort of... I mean, I worked for in development with NGOs, not, I was never based overseas in, for long periods. So yeah. there were trips from, from here. But but like you, I wouldn't have, I'm not totally comfortable with aid. I think, yeah. I think a way of phrasing it is international welfare. Right. Like yeah. if we look at welfare in Ireland, it's fine if you lose your job and you need to get back on your feet or if you're sick it's or something. It's not a long-term solution. It's yeah. not a long... If, I think yeah. if you're on welfare for five years, it's not good for you as right. an individual and it's not good for society or the Absolutely. government, you know. So I think the same with international welfare. Yeah, I agree. If countries like Uganda and Kenya, if the way in which they're behaving or ruling their countries or, or you know, driving their own bus is, is thinking about how they're going to get aid from Western governments, it's not the right setup. And yeah, I mean, it, 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 empowerment, I mean, it, right? I mean, even down to a village level, it yeah. creates what I call gimme gimme culture, yeah. you know, where I go into small villages or I'm out on, say, more recent years on coffee trips and the kids come up to you and the first word of English they, they learn is gimme gimme. And you're like, no, I'm not here to, you know, I don't think it's. And, just and to go back to the whole teacher man to fish, you know, phrase. That, I've heard that. It's absolutely true. It's it's teach, you know, don't just give people fish, teach yeah teach a woman to fish and she'll feed the whole uh, village. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, I think aid, it ha, it's really important in some some areas. Like yeah. when you have an emergency relief, when you have a, an earthquake, like recently say yeah. in Malawi, yeah. which didn't really hit the news here, but there was a horrific hurricane in Malawi. If you take all the hurricanes in America in a, in a season, yeah. the power of all those hurricanes combined into one hurricane, that's what hit Malawi about four or five weeks ago. I remember that on ago. the news. Right, they had six months of rain fall in six uh, days. Wow. So that's climate yeah. change right there. Yeah, right. And that that was a national emergency. Yeah. Now in that scenario, like they closed all the schools because they needed people to sleep in the schools. Villages have been washed away. A couple of hundred, that it might even be thousands now, died yeah. in that natural disaster. Yeah. It didn't make the news over yeah. here, but it's real and it's a real challenge for the people of uh, Malawi. International aid, absolutely, our agencies and our donations should go in yes, to support the people over the next year. All the crops were washed away. So there really was, you know, the implications of that are not yeah. just a couple of houses blown away, but, you know, the kind of long, it, it starts to go longer term. But that is a natural disaster, I, emergency relief. Yes. I absolutely believe we should so go in I. there. Yeah. And I think, I, I certainly believe in building roads. If if roads have to be built by international aid, do it. Here yeah. in Ireland, we got our roads built by the structural funds of the European Union, right? That gave us these lovely roads we have to, to Waterford yep. and Galway and stuff. Um, so infrastructure, absolutely invest yeah. in it. Education, totally invest in education. Absolutely. Right? And you and I share, share a belief in that. Um, and, and maybe basic healthcare as well, because yeah. parts of the world, whatever climate we have, I'm not a doctor, but whatever climate we have in Ireland, we don't have as many, you know, opportunistic diseases. We don't have things like malaria and, and TB and, you know, those diseases that really kill people yeah. uh, and, and kill children and things like that are far more common in, in yeah. countries, particularly, say, in South Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. So I do believe in, in, let's invest in those. But beyond that, 
you need to empower people to to take control. Like as I say, driving the bus, they should, yeah. people need to be empowered to draw to control their own life to yes. get an education, Absolutely. have, and then be able to go out there. But it's, it's, um, I mean, I can, obviously, you know, we're both on the same page with this. It's 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 opportunity, right? But it's also having the opportunity to make choices like kind of if your choice is, is survival <laughs> that's not a choice you know there's there's, there's not a something under something yeah. uh, you know and so I think I think what we're looking you know we both agree that sort of it's about empowerment it's about giving people the maximum of choice but also it's about the bigger question of what does it mean for a society to flourish you know what does what does flourishing mean in in in, in each particular context and I think what we've tended to do is with this word developed and and less developed or underdeveloped even, and now we've moved to global north and global south, but of course that's geographically redundant because we've got Australia and New Zealand who are in the global south, who are actually part of the global north, you know, so that's not, mm. you know, even great now. Um, the term third world, of course, gone, um, you know, and, and so it's this kind of separatist way of of speaking, I, I think firstly is 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 not helpful. Secondly, what we've done traditionally is we've become a nation. We are very we are very very. Um, we I think we give the most in charity out of all of the European countries. Uh, we we we're, might we're do. I mean, I've, I've heard that. You know, yeah, I've heard that stuff for years. I don't, I don't years. really I don't know what know. that means. But also at the same time, I think you know the the vision that we have about these charities, you know, um, has started to change. It's well overdue. The idea of sort of the poor black baby that flies their eyes, et cetera, et cetera. You know, mm. it's it's do how do we how do we talk about it in a way that it's about flourishing and empowerment when people are up on their feet to some extent. So you know, so is it a case of putting in funding mechanisms? Do you think? Well, or I mean, I th- uh, I, I if think if we get rid of aid, what's the alternative? Well, firstly, I think you know some of the terms, some of the the we need to be we need to be respectful of human beings, and so in the way in which we talk about the people from the continent of Africa, the fifty-seven countries, like let's not all there put is them not all in one. An Africa, yeah, yeah, like Europe. You know, yeah. If you talk about European wine, none of it's made in Ireland. We don't have anything to do with the wine <laughs> sure. industry. So we have to be very careful about using the term Africa as I broad. Agree. Yeah. There's many countries, different cultures, very different mindsets, and uh, as there are in Europe, you know, Germans and Irish people are very different in their outlook and their behaviours. So, I think we have to. The the challenge we have is is we here in the West for many decades have looked at ourselves kind of as being civilized or better than others, yeah. and and we've created this us and them and our and our our narrative and the phrases and. I think that's filtered into the NGO sector and into charities as well. We've kind of had this paternalistic and that's not a healthy way to to engage in partnership with people. Yeah, I agree. And so, you know, one, like in in recent years, so I set up Moy Coffee here in Ireland with with my business partner, Shane. The, The trade justice is about equality and it's, 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 it's not about charity. You're not, you know, by empowering Ireland to trade equally to Britain in Europe, that's not giving charity to Ireland. Yeah. That's giving Ireland its equal rights. Yeah. That's their fundamental rights. And so in the coffee sector, you know, some of the travels, when I worked with NGOs, I learned about coffee and uh, I, I learned how screwed up those coffee was. And I've since learned how screwed up so many of the everyday products we consume yeah. come from places like Africa, rich continents, rich countries within Africa, and yet none of the value goes back there. So like if you buy a cup of coffee for four euro, maybe two cent goes back to the farmer on the side of a mountain in Ethiopia um, or in Kenya or in Uganda. And those folks like 
the counterparts in Malawi could be dealing with some serious rain or, or, you know, climate change. Yeah. And they're getting two cents. And and I don't know how many cent out of your four euro cup of coffee is going to the government of that country to pay for roads or schools or hospitals. So... What we believe is the same way the French don't export grapes, right? The French, in terms of a wine industry, they export bottles of wine. They have a billion-dollar industry that France controls and they're able to brand it and we associate France with the excellence of its wine. And we probably pay more for French wine than we might for other other wines. And Ireland in recent years has captured the value of its own products. We don't send ships and ships of of live cattle. We process the cattle into into beef and we have a thriving food industry in Ireland and we're able to feed, what does they say? I think Ireland can feed 50 million people. The, yeah. the product produce of our farmers, because we've captured the value, we've controlled our own businesses, our own value, and we've monetized it for the benefit of our country. Yeah, the French do it for the benefit of their country with wine. Uh, you know, Germany is the fifth largest producer of coffee in the world, and it doesn't grow a single bean. So right. the challenge is, and I learned this with coffee was around the world, not just in sub-Saharan Africa, but you have this coffee belt. It's yes. in and around the equator. All coffee on our planet is grown in countries like Brazil, Colombia, Kenya, Ethiopia, India, and even Hawaii grows coffee. And yet, so 100% of the beans on our planet are grown in that coffee belt. Yes. But 99.99% of the coffee we drink is roasted in the West. So if you think of the brand names that we buy coffees from, the American big, big brands like Starbucks or Italian, Lavazza, Illy. Yeah. The, the brands we see in our supermarkets, the brands we see in, in coffee shops or, or that we buy out, they are roasted in the West. They're Western companies. Yeah. And as a billion-dollar industry, and coffee is, it's worth over $100 billion uh, a year, but most of that profit is captured by companies in the West. So the, the value of a roasted right. bean is seven times more valuable than an unroasted bean. And so... How did that happen in the first place? I mean, I, th- I think what... You have today. We're a planet of eight billion people, yeah. right? So most, and this this problem is not just in coffee. It's in chocolate. It's in cotton. Yeah. It's in avocados. It's in tea. It's in all. If you look at the everyday products we all consume, the goods in our supermarket basket that we eat and drink, and the clothes on our back and stuff, many of those products come from the other side of the world. They come from sub-Saharan Africa. They come mm. from parts of Asia. Yeah. That, those global business systems, like modern capitalism, was kind of designed about 200 years ago, yeah. between 100 and 200 years ago. And it was de- designed when the planet had 2 billion people. Yeah. And it was kind of designed to serve, maybe serve customers, 100 million customers in the West, and serve a couple of hundred rich people who own those companies. Right. So if you go back to, say, cotton and coffee and tea and even tobacco, they were grown in what were the colonies. Yeah. And they were grown for the benefit of, not of the workers. I mean, we're talking you know. from the 1850s onwards, right? Yeah. And even even a little earlier. Yeah. In, in, so, I mean, if you look at the history of Europe, you know, we did, you know, the, the, the kind of movement against slavery happened. But that then was really substituted with, okay, extracting goods yeah. like tobacco and sugar. And right. what was it the West, what was it Europe was was in love with? The products they wanted, tea and coffee and spices and sugar. They came from the colonies. They were extracted from those places, not for the benefit of the people living there, yeah. be they indigenous or people who had been moved there. So the system, you know, kind we of inherited was, the system. We inherited yeah, the system. Yeah. It was set up 200 years ago to serve customers and business owners in the West not to serve anybody else. Yeah. And so the problem I think we have is today 
we're on a planet of 8 billion people yeah. and we need to figure out a business system, a, a model, an economy or a yeah. global economy that serves all 8 billion of us, right? Because yeah. every kid Absolutely. on our planet deserves to go to college or deserves to have three meals a day and clean water and yeah. the ability to live a full life, right? And And at the same time, the environment, we shouldn't be destroying our environment. Like many of the, you know, we're sitting here with some plastic bottles. We know that so much of the things we consume, yeah. the carbon footprint of it, the environmental price is not being paid by you or I. Absolutely. It's yeah. been paid by butterflies or bees somewhere else on our on our planet, you know, or it's been paid by deforestation or or pollution of water. So the challenge we have is in this century, in the twenty first century, we've got it the planet is, is eight billion today. It'll eventually grow to be eleven billion and population will stop at eleven billion. Yeah. So, because most Just mothers, most mothers have two babies, they yeah. don't have ten. And w- when mothers are wealthier, they, yeah. when they have more choices, they choose to have two kids. Yeah. You know. Um, now I'm the youngest of five, so I'm like, <laughs> you know, yeah. I appreciate families can be of different sizes, but that's the trend. Yeah. So we will have, a, we need to figure out how to feed 11 billion people on our planet. Yeah. How to give 11 billion people on our planet a decent life, access to running water and electricity, but do it in a way that we can maybe leave half the planet wild. You know. I mean, I talked earlier on about my dad. I'd be quite inspired by my, my parents. When my dad was born 80, almost 90 years ago, yeah. 75% of the planet was wild. Today, yeah. it's 33%. Yeah, and shrinking fast. So, yeah. And shrinking fast. Mm. Now, in that same time frame, in, in, in their lifetime, if you like, our, our parents' generation, incredible advances were made against poverty and yes. around the world. Yes, true. And business... I would say nearly more than charity. Business was the key force that brought about that uh, prosperity for people all over the world. Even in, you know, countries of of the poorer regions of the world, things still, if you look at the grandparents versus the kids today, there was, generally speaking, there has been a lot of progress made. Yeah. But it hasn't but been even. But at the even, expense of the planet. Yeah, at the expense oh, of, of the planet. And certainly in some regions, I've certainly visited some that are decimated by climate change yeah. and that are neglected by globalization that, that, access to technology and stuff is not there. Um, I want to I, I want to address how you got into coffee in the first place and then and then what it is that you're actually doing. But before that, like kind of was there one was there one pivotal moment where it was like a light bulb moment for you? Yeah, um in the, in the so you know you were talking earlier on about the charity sector. So I was working with in the charity sector for a number of years and I think it was 2007 or 2008. And I was down in Uganda. And like you, Mm. there was things I wasn't comfortable about that the power imbalance between kind of white Western aid workers and and local people. And um, but I I always I mean, I've always loved traveling and I love the countries I visited in Africa. Beautiful countries. Uganda, stunning. And and Kenya. And I've always loved kind of taking a weekend off or time off if I can to go Mm. hiking because, you know, beautiful forests. So I was... I had a weekend off. I'd taken a bus up to um, Mount Elgon in the east, southeast of Uganda. It's a gorgeous volcano with kind of rainforest and, and, and famous coffee growing region and, and these famous sippy falls. And I was there, uh, I was hiking there and was going on, a, as a tourist, I went on a coffee hike and right, a local yeah. guide, Steve, brought me around and we kind of hiked through little farms and we met farmers. And... It was on that trip that I that I met some farmers who were growing kind of high altitude, organic, some of the finest coffee beans in the world. Yeah. And they were getting paid. And on the edge, we, we met some farmers. They were re- 
really nice people, but you could see their kids were very poor. Yeah. There was some elderly people. One old man had an eye patch on. He couldn't afford to go to the, the hospital. Right. They lived in straw hut. A lot of the kids in bare barefoot. Like real Yeah, they have a premium product. You know, they yeah. and yet they were growing. Yeah coffee that yeah and later that night my brother on a phone call in Seattle was like that coffee a kilo would sell for $50 right <laughs> And but on the hike because yes. I was telling him he, he was sort of the coffee geek in our family but when after we'd met that family we were walking further on through this beautiful landscape and we popped out onto a road yeah. and on the road was a was a washing station a factory where they where they you know would take in the cherries which the farmers yeah. uh, grow the coffee cherries and they'd process them and they had a big sign there, funded by Irish Aid. And beside it in chalk was the price that the farmers were getting paid. Yeah. And the farmers were getting paid 30 cent, like as in euros, yeah. you know, for a kilo of coffee. Wow. So I was flabbergasted when I saw that number. Yeah. And I had met those farmers who worked so hard and were producing, you know, a couple of hundred kilos. I, I think I, we calculated that day that those farmers were making 300 euro a year from, it was the only cash that they earned. Wow. from their hard work. Right. And here Irish Aid was positively, you know, trying yeah. to support development and trying to help this community rise up. Um, but they were, the prices were, were, you know, was so low, 30 cent a kilo. And as my brother said, a kilo could sell in Seattle for 50 euro, you know. Right. So to me, that was kind of like a eureka moment of why are we giving these people money? Why don't we just pay them a fair price, price for their, you know, why are we giving yeah. charity? Yeah, yeah, Why yeah, don't yeah. we just... Why don't pay we just a pay fair them? price yeah. for their goods, for their hard labor, and let them pay for their kids to go to school. Let them pay for medicine and food and, 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 and electricity and whatever. And that to me was the light bulb moment of, and also, you know, there's a difference when you're meeting people who are working and earning their money and they're not, it's not, there's a, you meet them as equals or, yeah. or more, there's more ability to meet people where they are as, and respect them as equals, you know, than, than the aid model. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I've firmly moved away. It's not to say that our we have great a great history in Ireland of aid agencies. Yeah. And, you know, we, we still do, but need there's to, more than one way around that. this. Yeah, there there's, is. I, yeah. I think the future is both. I actually think there's, there is yeah. a role for aid because also aid agencies can get uh, community. They can gain trust in a way that businesses can't. Um, so I think aid and trade at the same time is probably that hybrid model is probably the way forward. Um of those two sectors working together Absolutely to, to help agree. economies prosper Absolutely or help communities prosper. We're going to take another short break and then afterwards I'm going to come back and delve properly into the world of coffee. 93.9 Dublin South FM Welcome back to An Entrepreneur Like You with me, Dr. Lolly, and my guest today, Killian Stokes. So Killian, coffee, coffee. How did how did Moye, so spell Moye for me? M-O-Y-E-E. Moye coffee. How did that come about? So, yeah, that, that moment on Mount Elgon for me was kind of a, a light bulb moment about realizing, you know, it was my first time seeing the coffee industry and meeting coffee farmers and, and even roasting coffee there on, on the mountain with, with was some Was it local, the best cup of coffee you've ever had? I mean, the most amazing <laughs> cup of coffee. Absolutely. That that yeah. first kind of weekend. And I've been to Mount Elgin a couple of times, but absolutely beautiful, you yeah. know, in such gorgeous scenery and a beautiful cup of coffee that's grown there. It's it's And it's something we, you know, with Moyi, we get to go on, on trips back to see farmers and it's it's a beautiful experience. Um, but that, I suppose that planted a seed, that visitor, that, that day, yeah. it planted a seed in my head and it took a number of years later, I went off and lived in America for a couple of years, but I came back in 2014 
And I was kind of wondering what to do. And actually, it was the Innovation Academy, right? So I did a course in the Innovation Academy in 2015 or 16 and decided to come up with an idea for an ethical coffee business. And was that on the grad cert? That was, yeah, the postgraduate cert, the the (laughs) innovation. Yeah. So, um, and I was looking at subscription services and model, you know. Um, So, and a fellow graduate of, of the course was Shane Riley. Okay. And he also wanted to get involved in. So I had had, you know, my experience on the mountain in, in Mount Elgon in Africa. Yeah. Shane had similarly traveled around South, South America with his girlfriend, um, now wife. And, and they had ex- they had been in coffee growing countries and found it impossible to get a good cup of coffee. <laughs> so the two of us had wanted to do something <laughs> yeah. about... Uh, it was all, sold elsewhere, right? It was yeah. all powdered coffee that he was saying that they were having. But So the two of us met up and decided we'd yeah. try and create an ethical coffee company that would tackle, you know, really to source from the coffee belt, coffee, coffee roasted in the coffee belt. So I headed off uh, coffee hunting. I went back to Uganda and Ethiopia, knowing very little about coffee, went, just followed my nose, went into supermarkets, bought local bags of coffee, flipped them over, checked the label, right. went out to, vi- to visit the factories, the roasters. Nice, the original sourcing, yeah. And, you know, so we, and I think I came back with 12, or somewhere between 12 and 20 bags of coffee from Ethiopia and from Uganda because I did a couple of weeks in those two countries and while I was in Ethiopia I visited a roastery that was set up by Dutch and Ethiopian uh, entrepreneurs it was the Moi roastery in in Addis and they brought me up to the mountains to see the farmers growing stunning coffee and at this particular time are you just going into the thing I'm kind of are you saying you're an entrepreneur? Are you saying you've a business idea? Or no, or? I'm literally saying out of business. I was just how uh, you introduced yourself. I was of a tourist. Yeah, I was literally following my nose. Like I okay. remember in Uganda driving in a taxi one day, and I saw a sign on a wall: "The Ugandan Coffee Authority." And I told the taxi man <laughs> to stop the car, and I just paid him, and I went in, and I went upstairs, and I said, "Hi, how's it going?" I'm introduced myself. I'm in coffee. <laughs> I'm in the co- I'm looking to bring. I'm looking to bring coffee from your country to to mine, and and um, so I really didn't oh, know. It's so raw. I love it. Really didn't know what. But yeah. it was kind of an adventure, and yeah, you know, completely. following on from that day, that touristy day in Mount Elgon, I kind of knew that I wanted. It was Mount Elgon. I sort of wanted to get back to. Yeah, nearly. yeah. Um, so we we I met the guys in 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 Addis. I met uh, Ahadu and the roasting team there, and and that was a Dutch Ethiopian partnership. Yeah. And then I brought those coffees back to Ireland, and and we had had sort of uh, an initial trial. It was called Bean Tribe with these subscri- subscribers. Yeah. And they tasted the various coffees and they really loved the flavour of that coffee. So then Shane and I went to the Netherlands and we met the Dutch founders, Pido and the team over there. And they were taking the coffee that was roasted, grown and roasted in Ethiopia and they were selling it into offices in the Netherlands. Yeah. And and we had a couple of beers with them and got quite drunk in Amsterdam. We decided, right, instead of us recreating, reinventing the wheel, let's take this business and bring it. So, you know, they had a concept of fair chain, the idea that every step in the value chain of a product should be fair and roasting at origin. So 2016, I think, Shane and I started it. We had no money. We didn't even have an office. We got a lend of a room you know, to, to start as an office and classic entrepreneurial thing. And yep. the Dutch guys gave us a credit line of beans. So they shipped us over bags of coffee and we got a lend of a coffee machine. 
And we slowly started to go into tech companies okay. and say, hey, can we Smart. bring in our machine and maybe meet you at 10 o'clock and we'll, we'll make a cup of coffee for your staff and we'll tell you why this is different. Yeah. So, you know, the first couple of years, like, you know, the first year we didn't have enough, we had other jobs. We yeah. didn't, couldn't pay ourselves. The second year we paid ourselves every second month. The third year, you know, little by little, Typical we were increasing. <laughs> yeah. and, and each, you know, we'd, we'd win new businesses. And eventually, I think we got to about 50 companies. So we had 50, mostly tech companies in and around Dublin, a few uh, around the country, mm. one or two in England as well. And we were supplying them with beans and we had coffee machines that we were coming in from, you know, uh, Switzerland and stuff like that. So we had kind of the tech part, you know, the yeah. bean, a bean, what's called a bean to cup machine. You pour beans in the back, you plug in some milk and it'll make a cappuccino for bean you. Bean to cup, I haven't heard bean of that to before. Cup. Yeah. Lovely machine. So uh, that was going well for us. And eventually we had money to hire another staff and, and you know, we're growing yeah. bit by bit. And I think it was February 2020 we got, it was like, we we were about to have a great year. And we, I think you I know, just met you around that time and you were like, I've got a big lead. And it just was, well, it was kind of going really well. It was starting yeah. to go. And then, you know, March, it all fell off a cliff with COVID. But didn't you have a, a you know? big lead lined up? That was, that took a little bit of time. It actually took nearly the whole of COVID. I mean, yeah. we, we ended up, COVID was a struggle. What, of course, you're no all longer of our in offices. offices yeah. We were supplying. They they closed their their doors, so we very quickly had to pivot to online. You know, set up a subscription service and, yeah. and start selling. But yeah, we we because of the ethical aspect, we we eventually got uh, some meetings with uh, uh, Google. So we got one of the things we that kept us going. Maybe in 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 the co- is that because Google have to tick a box for ethical suppliers? I think it's because Google as a company, they they are conscious of the supply chains of their food, where it comes yeah. from, and, and yeah. the ethics and like the carbon footprint and things like that. So yeah. certainly, when you know what they loved about us, as has been the case with every other client we've had, what really appeals to people is the fact that this coffee is roasted at origin, so it supports yes. economic, you know, job creation in places like uh, Addis or in um, uh, the capital of. Kenya, sorry, I'm, I'm losing it here. Uh, uh, um, gosh, I can't even remember the name of the cap. Nairobi. Yes. Right. So we've we've two roasteries that, that in fact, the, the the roastery in Nairobi we set up in Kenya in the middle of COVID, um, and that was with some support that we raised from Irish Aid. Um, exactly. So we were kind of building the business here, growing, uh, you know, bringing in new companies, yeah. and at the same time with our Dutch partners seeking aid or grants to kind of, we bought a washing station in Ethiopia. We were working, doing farmer training. Uh, in Kenya, we we bought a roastery and we, we bought a roasting machine, which we shipped in from Romania in the middle of COVID. Wow. Um, so we were kind of investing in changing the steps that coffee comes from and trying to shift where the value goes. And then at the same time, grow the business and sell. What's the difference um, between fair chain and fair trade? So, I mean, fair chain, we're looking at every step. Often fair trade, they give a farmer um, a couple of cent more per kilo at farm level. They might do some community projects with farmers, whereas with fair chain, we're trying to look at every step of the value chain. So from the very beginning, you know, coffee starts life as a cherry on a tree. So there are farmers there, the washing station, the community, but the roasting, a lot of what we're doing is pushing the roasting back into, not not roasting here in Europe, let's roast in the countries of origin. Um. And with farmers, we're not focused on just a couple of cent more. We're looking at a living income. Yeah. So I, m- I mentioned earlier on, your average coffee farmer might earn 400 euro a year. Yeah. But where they live, a living income is 1,200 euro a year. Right, right. So we're sort of on a journey to fix coffee. It's going to take a couple of years. It's going to take, we've got to figure it out. But how can these people get to 1,200 euro? It's paying them more for their coffee. 
helping them grow more coffee, but maybe it's other sources of income at the same time. But that's what success looks like for those people is 1,200 euro uh, a year. You know, I mean, anything less than that, including fair trade, mm. is an improve, and including ourselves, is an improvement. But, you know, those people, and even today our farmers, they still really struggle to, to make ends meet. So the why, key is, is a living income. Why have you not gone into retail, into coffee shops? Uh, we have because we're still a small company. We're yeah. in we're in some retail. We've our main uh, success. You're supplying been, coffee shops, but you don't have a a brand. We don't have our own, our own coffee. coffee shop. Yeah, yeah. And we are in some retail. We're in uh, some small operators like Lots and Co. But retail hasn't been our major channel. The, okay. The off you know coffee at work. Um, most of us drink about twenty one cups of coffee a week, and you tend to drink fifteen of those when you're in the office. So if you work for somebody nice like Google or Groupon or the Tara building or yeah. Patch Labs where, you know, coffee is supplied then, and, you know, in those cases, coffee is supplied by us, then... I was at the um, Fibsper market two Sundays ago and they were selling Moye coffee on a little stall. I was so happy. <laughs> yeah, I think that might be, if I might, uh, Jenny, there's a um, packaging free. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's been a, a client for a number of years. Um, I get excited when I see it in places. I'm like, ooh. It's yeah. It's still <laughs> yeah. I mean, retail. We don't have the same. Well, it's got the gorgeous pink bags. It's got amazing branding. You know, um, how how then how then do you scale? Do you want to scale? Like, of course, yeah. No, of course. We've. I mean, we learned a lot in in Ethiopia, yeah. and we're really scaling in in Kenya. So, yeah. and obviously here, we're trying to scale by growing. You know, more and more sales. We're, we're in terms of subscription to the coffee. S- for us, a big part would be the online subscription. Yeah, We've, yeah. Uh, and that's grown and grown since And since your coffee COVID. is amazing. So I would encourage people um, to get a subscription. Yeah, moicoffee.ie. We must give you a, a, a link to give a discount or something for, for listeners. Um, but our, our, our the kind of journey has been sort of the economic is, is the roasting at yeah. origin. The social change that we want to see is helping those farmers earn a living income. Yeah. But kind of the third piece of the puzzle is, is the environmental uh, and and that's right. really huge with coffee. That and it's something that is not as commonly known by you know us as consumers. Like we know from say right. fair trade, we know a little bit about farmers and incomes that farmers don't earn enough. Yeah. But the connection between coffee and deforestation, for example, is is quite quite massive. Tell um, me about the changes you've noticed in the time you've been going. I mean, I, there's three big in even in the last twelve twelve months. So the first place that I ever started my coffee journey, Mount Elgon, it's a beautiful mountain. Uh, on the border of, of, you know, in East Uganda, borders with Kenya, stunning uh, uh, mountain. It has lost 25% of its trees in the last 20 years. Now, if you go to Mount Kenya, in Kenya, uh, which is beautiful, one of the largest, you know, snow-capped mountain in in Africa, it's also lost 25% of its trees in the last 20 years. In Ethiopia... As a nation, we've seen, and they've done some great things to try and turn that round, but they've lost about a quarter of their trees in the last two decades. And then down, another area was in Bawindi Forest, which is famous for the gorillas, you know, yeah. those Highland gorillas. That's in southwest Uganda. Again, an incredible, like the, the natural habitat there is beautiful. That's where Jane Goodall was, right? Y- yeah. Gorillas uh, in the mist. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But that is seeing losses of 25% of its trees in the last 20 years. Right. So... Increasingly what's happening is tea farmers or coffee farmers, if they earn so little, if they earn just 300 or 400 euro a year from their harvest, mm. then they can't feed their family on, on that amount. They will clear land to either grow more coffee or grow food. Or food, yeah, of course. Or 
chop down these great big ancient trees. Like I often think farmers, some of those poor farmers don't have the luxury to look beyond their kitchen table. That environmental right. climate change or, or, or environmentalism wanting to protect the biodiversity, that's sort of a middle class, it's a luxury. So those folks, you could have a tree that grows, it takes 100 years for a tree to grow. You can chop that down in a weekend and that'll give your family food or you, you, you sell the firewood. Yeah. That'll give you income for three months or six weeks. And then what? And then what? Yeah, yeah. And so there's massive deforestation, there's massive land erosion, mudslides, climate is changing. So many of these farmers are the victim. They're on the edge of climate change. Their yeah, harvests yeah, are being reduced because of changing weather patterns. And they're kind of, they're really because the price they earn is so low because they can't control the global market. They are victims to global forces or or are you know mass consumption and and the way that that kind of global business system that capitalism is set up, um, they're victims to that. So we do need to. Killian, what we, should we be doing? <laughs> I think we need more companies like Moi. I think we need business. You know, our main theories around business. We have to. Uh, not just be focused on on profits for a small handful of shareholders. Yeah, all of our businesses, which is just a mindset. All of them. Yeah. yeah, they need to. We need to kind of change the mindset that every business takes into account the environmental price, takes into account the suppliers and all the workers. And I mean, I think your supply chain is your brand. So yeah. it's not just good enough having a nice logo. Everybody that is involved helping you deliver your product, they have to be treated fairly. They have to be able to put food on the table yeah. and, and be responsible as as workers, as consumers, as, as, as citizens. As know. consumers of coffee, what can we do? I think we can be more discerning and and, and choose to drink coffee uh, from companies that are giving back more to the environment or that are giving back more to, to farmers and other workers along the value chain. 100% um, Such as Moe, but, you know, there's others too out there. Yeah. I, it's, I absolutely agree. I think we will look back in hundred years and say what on earth were we doing hmm. but let's not leave on a negative note no I think <laughs> I mean business I think is the most powerful force in our economy it's bigger yeah. than governments it's bigger than charity if business is responsible and sustainable and also at the heart of business is innovation and entrepreneurship like is, is creativity yeah. Creativity. so absolutely. we've just got a problem solve and, and you know responsible business is kind of the best engine to encourage innovation and to 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 encourage creativity or, or we've got to redesign the system you know well let's uh, finish there reinvent, you know. <laughs> let's, let's finish with let's reinvent the system yeah. Killian absolute pleasure Moi Coffee everybody uh, is a subscription service your website is moicoffee.ie nice does what it says in the tin it's an absolute pleasure thank you so much thank you very much thank you